5. Tain a nominal independence, preserving their own laws, and renewing from time to time their treaties with Rome. The inhabitants of several other towns, such as Tusculum and Lanuvium, received the Roman franchise, their territory was incorporated in that of the Republic, and two new tribes were created to carry these arrangements into effect. Many of the most distinguished Romans sprung from these land towns. Twelve years elapsed between the subjugation of Latium and the commencement of the Second Samnite War. During this time the Roman arms continued to make steady progress. One of their most important conquests was that of the Volscian town of Privernum in B.C. 329, from which time the Volscians, so long the formidable enemies of Rome, disappear as an independent nation. The extension of the Roman power naturally awakened the jealousy of the Samnites, and the assistance rendered by them to the Greek cities of Polyapolis and Nepolis was the immediate occasion of the Second Samnite War. These two cities were colonies of the neighboring Kumi, and were situated only five miles from each other. The position of Polyapolis, or the old city, is uncertain, but Nepolis, or the new city, stands on the site of a part of the modern Naples. The Romans declared war against the two cities in B.C. 327, and sent the consul Q. Publilius Philo to reduce them to subjection. The Greek colonists had previously formed an alliance with the Samnites, and now received powerful Samnite garrisons. Publilius encamped between the cities, and as he did not succeed in taking them before his year of office expired, he was continued in the command with the title of proconsul. The first time that this office was created, at the beginning of the following year Polyapolis was taken, and Nepolis only escaped the same fate by concluding an alliance with the Romans. Meanwhile the Romans had declared war against the Samnites. Second O.R. Great Samnite War, B.C. 326-304. The Second Samnite War lasted 22 years, and was by far the most important of the three wars which this people waged with Rome. During the first five years B.C. 326-322, the Roman arms were generally successful. The Samnites became so disheartened that they sued for peace, but obtained only a truce for a year. It was during this period that the well-known quarrel took place between El Papiris Cursor and Q. Fabius Maximus, the two most celebrated Roman generals of the time, who constantly led the armies of the Republic to victory. In B.C. 325 leaders Papiris was dictator and Q. Fabius his master of the horse, recalled to Rome by some defect in the auspices. The dictator left the army in charge of Fabius, but with strict orders not to venture upon an engagement, compelled or provoked by the growing boldness of the enemy. Fabius attacked and defeated them with great loss, but this victory was no extenuation for his offense in the eyes of the dictator. Papiris hastened back to the camp, burning with indignation that his commands had been disobeyed and ordered his lictors to seize Fabius and put him to death. The soldiers, whom Fabius had led to victory, rose in his defense, and in the night he escaped to Rome, to implore the protection of the Senate. He was stating the case to the fathers, when Papiris entered the Senate house, followed by his lictors, and demanded that the offender should be given up for execution. But the Senate, the people, and the aged father of Maximus interceded so strongly for his life that the dictator was obliged to give way and to grant an ungracious pardon. The year's truce had not expired when the Samnites again took up arms, and for the next seven years B.C. 321-315, the balance of success inclined to their side. This appears to have been mainly owing to the military abilities of their general C. Pontius, who deserves to be ranked among the chief men of antiquity. 
in the first year of his command he inflicted upon the Romans one of the severest blows they ever sustained in the whole course of their history. In B.C. 321 the two consuls, Tibetores and Esti, Postumis, marched into Samnium by the road from Capua to Beneventum. Near the town of Caudine they entered the celebrated pass called the Caudiani Forks for Caudini. It consisted of two narrow defiles or gorges, between which was a tolerably spacious plain, but shut in on each side by mountains. The Romans, thinking the Samnites to be far distant, had marched through the first pass and the plain, but when they came to the second they found it blocked up by works and trunks of trees, so as to be quite impassable, retracing their steps to the pass by which they had entered. They found that the enemy had meantime taken possession of this also. They were thus blocked up at either end, and, after making vain attempts to force their way through, were obliged to surrender at discretion. Thus both consuls and four legions fell into the hands of the Samnites. C. Pontius made a merciful use of his victory. He agreed to dismiss them in safety upon their promising to restore the ancient alliance on equal terms between the two nations, and to give up all the places which they had conquered during the war. The consuls and the other superior officers swore to these terms in the name of the Republic, and 600 Roman knights were given as hostages. The whole Roman army was now allowed to depart, and each Roman soldier marched out singly under the yoke. When the news of this disaster reached Rome the Senate refused to ratify the peace, and resolved that the two consuls and all the officers who had sworn to the peace should be delivered up to the Samnites as persons who had deceived them. They were conducted to Caudim by Ephesiales, and when they appeared before the tribunal of C. Pontius, Postumis, with superstitious folly, struck the Ephesiales with his foot, saying that he was now a Samnite citizen, and that war might be renewed with justice by the Romans, since a Samnite had insulted the sacred envoy of the Roman people. But Pontius refused to accept the persons who were thus offered, and told them, if they wished to nullify the treaty, to send back the army to the Caudine Forks. Thus Postumis and his companions returned to Rome, and the six hundred knights were alone left in the hands of the Samnites. The disaster of Caudine shook the fate of many of the Roman allies, and the fortune of war was for some years in favor of the Samnites. But in B.C. 314 the tide of success again turned, and the decisive victory of the consuls in that year opened the way into the heart of Samnium. From this time the Romans were uniformly successful, and it seemed probable that the war was drawing to a close. When the Etruscans created a powerful diversion by declaring war against Rome in B.C. 311, but the energy and ability of Q. Fabius Maximus averted this new danger, he boldly carried the war into the very heart of Etruria, and gained a decisive victory over the forces of the League. The Samnites also were repeatedly defeated, and after the capture of Bovianum, the chief city of the Pentry, they were compelled to sue for peace. It was granted them in B.C. 304 on condition of their acknowledging the supremacy of Rome, at the conclusion of the Second Samnite War the Equians and Hernicans were reduced to subjection after a brief struggle. A part of the Equian territory was incorporated in that of Rome by the addition of two new tribes, and two colonies were planted in the other portion, the Marsi, Marusini, Peligni, and other nations of central Italy, entered into a league with the Romans on equal terms. Thus, in B.C. 300, the power of Rome seemed firmly established in central Italy, but this very power awakened the jealousy of the surrounding nations, and the Samnites exerted themselves to form a new and formidable coalition. The Etruscans and Umbrians agreed to make war against Rome, and called in the assistance of the Sinonian Gauls. Third Samnite War, 
B.C. 298-290. As soon as the Etruscans and Umbrians were engaged with Rome, the Samnites invaded Lucania. The Lucanians invoked the assistance of the Romans, who forthwith declared war against the Samnites. The Republic had now to contend at one and the same time against the Etruscans, Umbrians, Gauls, and Samnites, but she carried on the struggle with the utmost energy, attacking the Etruscans, Umbrians, and Gauls in the north, and the Samnites in the south. At length, in B.C. 295, the Samnites joined their confederates in Umbria, in this country, near the town of Sendinum. A desperate battle was fought, which decided the fortune of the war. The two Roman consuls were the aged Q. Fabius Maximus and P. Decius Mus. The victory was long doubtful. The wing commanded by Decius was giving way before the terrible onset of the Gauls, when he determined to imitate the example of his father, and to devote himself and the enemy to destruction. His death gave fresh courage to his men, and Fabius gained a complete and decisive victory. Delis Agnatius, the Samnite general, who had taken the most active part in forming the coalition, was slain. Though the league was thus broken up, the Samnites continued the struggle for five years longer. During this period C. Pontius, who had defeated the Romans at the Caudine Forks, again appeared, after twenty-seven years, as the leader of the Samnites, but was defeated by Q. Fabius Maximus with great loss and taken prisoner. Being carried to Rome, he was put to death as the triumphal car of the victor ascended the capital B.C. 292. This shameful act has been justly branded as one of the greatest stains on the Roman annals. Two years afterward the Samnites were unable to continue any longer the hopeless struggle, and became the subjects of Rome. The third and last Samnite war was brought to a close in B.C. 290. Chapter IX. From the conclusion of the Asaemanidae War to the Subjugatii Island of Italy. B.C. 290-265. Ten years elapsed from the conclusion of the Third Samnite War to the arrival of Pyrrhus in Italy. During this time the Etruscans and Gauls renewed the war in the north, but were defeated with great slaughter near the Lake Vidimo. This decisive battle appears to have completely crushed the Etruscan power, and it inflicted so severe a blow upon the Gauls that we hear no more of their ravages for the next sixty years. In the south the Lucanians also rose against Rome. The extension of the Roman dominion in the south of the peninsula had brought the state into connection with the Greek cities, which at one period were so numerous and powerful as to give to this part of Italy the name of Magna Graecia. Many of these cities had now fallen into decay through internal dissensions and the conquests of the Lucanians and other Sibelian tribes, but Tarentum, originally a Lacedaemonian colony, still maintained her former power and splendor. The Tarentines naturally regarded with extreme jealousy the progress of the Roman arms in the south of Italy, and had secretly instigated the Etruscans and Lucanians to form a new coalition against Rome. But the immediate cause of the war between the Lucanians and Romans was the assistance which the latter had rendered to the Greek city of Thurii. Being attacked by the Lucanians, the Thurians applied to Rome for aid, and the consul C. Fabricius not only relieved Thurii but defeated the Lucanians and their allies in several engagements B.C. 252. Upon the departure of Fabricius a Roman garrison was left in Thurii. The only mode now of maintaining communication between Rome and Thurii was by sea, but this was virtually forbidden by a treaty which the Romans had made with Tarentum nearly twenty years before, in which treaty it was stipulated that no Roman ships of war should pass the Licinian promontory, but circumstances were now changed and the Senate determined that their vessels should no longer be debarred from the Gulf of Tarentum, 
There was a small squadron of ten ships in those seas under the command of Alvarez, and one day, when the Tarentines were assembled in the theater, which looked over the sea, they saw the Roman squadron sailing toward their harbor. This open violation of the treaty seemed a premeditated insult, and a demagogue urged the people to take some revengeance. They rushed down to the harbor, quickly manned some ships, and gained an easy victory over the small Roman squadron. Only half made their escape, four were sunk, one taken, and Vlaris himself killed. After this the Tarentines marched against Thurii, compelled the inhabitants to dismiss the Roman garrison, and then plundered the town. The Senate sent an embassy to Tarentum to complain of these outrages and to demand satisfaction. El Postumis, who was at the head of the embassy, was introduced with his colleagues into the theater, to state to the assembled people the demands of the Roman Senate. He began to address them in Greek, but his mistakes in the language were received with peals of laughter from the thoughtless mob, unable to obtain a hearing, much less an answer. Postumis was leaving the theater, when a drunken buffoon rushed up to him and sullied his white robe in the most disgusting manner. The whole theater rang with shouts of laughter and clapping of hands, which became louder and louder when Postumis held up his sullied robe and showed it to the people. Laugh on now, he cried. But this road shall be washed in torrents of your blood. War was now inevitable. The luxurious Tarentines sent an embassy to Pyrrhus, king of Epirus, begging him, in the name of all the Italian Greeks, to cross over into Italy in order to conduct the war against the Romans. They told him that they only wanted a general, and that all the nations of southern Italy would flock to his standard. Pyrrhus needed no persuasion to engage in an enterprise which realized the earliest dreams of his ambition. The conquest of Italy would naturally lead to the sovereignty of Sicily and Africa, and he would then be able to return to Greece with the united forces of the West to overcome his rivals and reign as master of the world. But as he would not trust the success of his enterprise to the valor and fidelity of Italian troops, he began to make preparations to carry over a powerful army. Meantime he sent Milo, one of his generals, with a detachment of 3,000 men, to garrison the citadel of Tarentum. Pyrrhus himself crossed over from Epirus toward the end of B.C. 281, taking with him 20.000 foot, 3,000 horse, and 20 elephants. Upon reaching Tarentum he began to make preparations to carry on the war with activity. The Tarentines soon found they had obtained a master rather than an ally. He shut up the theater and all other public places, and compelled their young men to serve in his ranks, notwithstanding all his activity. The Romans were first in the field, the consul Envilaris Laevinius marched into Lucania, but as the army of Pyrrhus was inferior to that of the Romans, he attempted to gain time by negotiation in order that he might be joined by his Italian allies. He accordingly wrote to the consul, offering to arbitrate between Rome and the Italian states, but Laevinius bluntly told him to mind his own business and retire to Epirus, fearing to remain inactive any longer, although he was not yet joined by his allies. Pyrrhus marched out against the Romans with his own troops and the Tarentines. He took up his position between the towns of Pandosia and Heraclea, on the river Ceres. The Romans, who were encamped on the other side of the river, were the first to begin the battle. They crossed the river, and were immediately attacked by the cavalry of Pyrrhus, who led them to the charging person, and distinguished himself as usual by the most daring acts of valor. The Romans, however, bravely sustained the attack, and Pyrrhus, Finding that his cavalry could not decide the day, ordered his infantry to advance. The battle was still contested most furiously, 
Seven times did both armies advance and retreat, and it was not till Pyrrhus brought forward his elephants, which bore down everything before them, that the Romans took to flight, leaving their camp to the conqueror B.C. 280. This battle taught Pyrrhus the difficulty of the enterprise he had undertaken, before the engagement, when he saw the Romans forming their line as they crossed the river, he said to his officers, in war, at any rate, these barbarians are not barbarous, and afterward, as he saw the Roman dead lying upon the field with all their wounds in front, he exclaimed, if these were my soldiers, or if I were their general, we should conquer the world, and, though his loss had been inferior to that of the Romans, still so large a number of his officers and best troops had fallen, that he said, another such victory, and I must return to Epirus alone, he therefore resolved to avail himself of this victory to conclude, if possible, an advantageous peace, he sent his minister Sinius to Rome with the proposal that the Romans should recognize the independence of the Greeks in Italy, restore to the Samnites, Lucanians, Apulians, and Brudians all the possessions which they had lost in war, and make peace with himself and the Tarentines. As soon as peace was concluded on these terms he promised to return all the Roman prisoners without ransom. Sinias, whose persuasive eloquence was said to have won more towns for Pyrrhus than his arms, neglected no means to induce the Romans to accept these terms. The prospects of the Republic seemed so dark and threatening that many members of the Senate thought it would be more prudent to comply with the demands of the King, and this party would probably have carried the day had it not been for the patriotic speech of the aged. App. Claudius Caucus, who denounced the idea of a peace with a victorious foe with such effect that the Senate declined the proposals of the King, and commanded Sinius to quit Rome the same day. Sinius returned to Pyrrhus, and told him he must hope for nothing from negotiation, that the city was like a temple of the gods, and the Senate an assembly of kings. Pyrrhus now advanced by rapid marches toward Rome, ravaging the country as he went along, and without encountering any serious opposition. He at length arrived at Prenest, which fell into his hands. He was now only twenty-four miles from Rome, and his outposts advanced six miles farther. Another march would have brought him under the walls of the city, but at this moment he learned that peace was concluded with the Etruscans, and that the other consul had returned with his army to Rome. All hope of compelling the Romans to accept the peace was now gone, and he therefore resolved to retreat. He retired slowly into Campania and from thence withdrew into a winter quarters to Tarentum. As soon as the armies were quartered for the winter, the Romans sent an embassy to Pyrrhus to negotiate the ransom or exchange of prisoners. The ambassadors were received by Pyrrhus in the most distinguished manner, and his interviews with C. Fabricius, who was at the head of the embassy, form one of the most famous stories in Roman history. Fabricius was a fine specimen of the sturdy Roman character. He cultivated his farm with his own hands, and, like his contemporary Tories, was celebrated for his incorruptible integrity. The king attempted in vain to work upon his cupidity and his fears. He steadily refused the large sums of money offered by Pyrrhus, and when an elephant, concealed behind him by a curtain, waved his trunk over his head, Fabricius remained unmoved. Such respect did his conduct inspire, that Pyrrhus attempted to persuade him to enter into his service and accompany him to Greece. The object of the embassy failed. The king refused to exchange the prisoners, but, to show them his trust in their honor, he allowed them to go to Rome in order to celebrate the Saturnalia, stipulating that they were to return to Tarentum if the Senate would not accept the terms which he had previously offered through Sinias. The Senate remained firm in their resolve, 
and all the prisoners returned to Pyrrhus, the punishment of death having been denounced against those who should remain in the city. In the following year BC 279 the war was renewed, and a battle was fought near Esculum. The Romans fled to their camp, which was so near to the field of battle that not more than 6,000 fell, while Pyrrhus lost more than half this number. The victory yielded Pyrrhus little or no advantage, and he was obliged to retire to Tarentum for the winter without effecting anything more during the campaign. In the last battle, as well as in the former, the brunt of the action had fallen almost exclusively upon his Greek troops, and the state of Greece, which this year was overrun by the Gauls, made it hopeless for him to expect any reinforcements from Epirus. He was therefore unwilling to hazard his surviving Greeks by another campaign with the Romans and accordingly lent a ready ear to the invitations of the Greeks in Sicily, who begged him to come to their assistance against the Carthaginians. It was necessary, however, first to suspend hostilities with the Romans, who were likewise anxious to get rid of so formidable an opponent, that they might complete the subjugation of southern Italy without farther interruption. When both parties had the same wishes it was not difficult to find a fair pretext for bringing the war to a conclusion. This was afforded at the beginning of the following year B.C. 278 by one of the servants of Pyrrhus deserting to the Romans, and proposing to the consuls to poison his master, they sent back the deserter to the king, saying that they had hoard a victory gained by treason. Thereupon Pyrrhus, to show his gratitude, sent Sinius to Rome with all the Roman prisoners, without ransom and without conditions, and the Romans granted him a truce, leaving Milo with part of his troops in possession of Tarentum. Pyrrhus now crossed over into Sicily. He remained there upward of two years. At first he met with brilliant success, and deprived the Carthaginians of a great part of the island. Subsequently, however, he received a severe repulse in an attempt which he made upon the impregnable town of Lilibium. The fickle Greeks now began to form cabals and plots against him. This led to a retaliation on his part, and he soon became as anxious to abandon the island as he had been before to leave Italy. Accordingly, when his Italian allies again begged him to come to their assistance, he readily complied with their request, and arrived in Italy in the autumn of B.C. 276. His troops were now almost the same in number as when he first landed in Italy, but very different in quality. The faithful Epiros had for the most part fallen, and his present soldiers consisted chiefly of mercenaries, whom he had levied in Italy. One of his first operations was the recovery of Locri which had revolted to the Romans, and as he here found himself in great difficulties for want of money to pay his troops, he was induced to take possession of the treasures of the temple of Proserpine in that town, but the ships conveying the money were wrecked. This circumstance deeply affected the mind of Pyrrhus, he ordered the treasures which were saved to be restored to the temple, and from this time became haunted by the idea that the wrath of Proserpine was pursuing him, and dragging him down to a ruin. The following year B.C. 274 closed the career of Pyrrhus in Italy. The consul M. Curis marched into Samnium, and his colleague into Lucania. Pyrrhus advanced against Curis, who was encamped in the neighborhood of Beneventum, and resolved to fight with him before he was joined by his colleague. As Curis did not wish to risk a battle with his own army alone, Pyrrhus planned a night attack upon his camp, but he miscalculated the time and the distance. The torches burned out. The men missed their way and it was already broad daylight when he reached the heights above the Roman camp. Still their arrival was quite unexpected, but, as a battle was now inevitable, Coeris led out his men. The troops of Pyrrhus, exhausted by fatigue, were easily put to the rout, two elephants were killed and eight more taken. 
encouraged by this success, Khoury's no longer hesitated to meet the king in the open plain, and gained a decisive victory. Pyrrhus arrived at Tarentum with only a few horsemen. Shortly afterward he crossed over to Greece, leaving Milo with a garrison at Tarentum. Two years afterward he perished in an attack upon Argos, ingloriously slain by a tile hurled by a woman from the roof of the house. The departure of Pyrrhus left the Lucanians and other Italian tribes exposed to the full power of Rome. They nevertheless continued the hopeless struggle a little longer, but in B.C. 272 Tarentum fell into the hands of Rome, and in a few years afterward every nation in Italy, to the south of the Macra and the Rubicon, owned the supremacy of Rome. She had now become one of the first powers in the ancient world. The defeat of Pyrrhus attracted the attention of the nations of the East, and in B.C. 273, Ptolemy Philadelphus, king of Egypt, sent an embassy to Rome, and concluded a treaty with the Republic. The dominion which Rome had acquired by her arms was confirmed by her policy. She pursued the same system which she had adopted upon the subjugation of Latium, keeping the cities isolated from one another, but at the same time allowing them to manage their own affairs. The population of Italy was divided into three classes, says Romani, Nomen Latinum, and Socii. Ici these are Alevaeni, or Roman citizens. These consisted, one, of the citizens of the 33 tribes into which the Roman territory was now divided, and which extended north of the Tiber a little beyond Vi, and southward as far as Galeries, though even in this district there were some towns, such as Tiber and Prenist, which did not possess the Roman franchise. 2. Of the citizens of Roman colonies planted in different parts of Italy. 3. Of the citizens of municipal towns upon whom the Roman franchise was conferred. In some cases the Roman franchise was granted without the right of voting in the Comitia Civitas Sine Suffragio. But in course of time this right also was generally conceded. Or the Latin name. This term was applied to the colonies founded by Rome which did not enjoy the rights of Roman citizenship and which stood in the same position with regard to the Roman state as had been formerly occupied by the cities of the Latin League. The name originated at a period when colonies were actually sent out in common by the Romans and Latins, but similar colonies continued to be founded by the Romans alone long after the extinction of the Latin League. In fact, the majority of the colonies planted by Rome were of this kind, the Roman citizens who took part in them voluntarily resigning their citizenship in consideration of the grants of land which they obtained, but the citizen of any Latin colony might emigrate to Rome, and be enrolled in one of the Roman tribes, provided he had held a magistracy in his native town. These Latin colonies the Nomen Latinum were some of the most flourishing towns in Italy, iii, associii, or allies, included the rest of Italy. Each of the towns which had been conquered by Rome had formed a treaty folders with the latter, which determined their rights and duties. These treaties were of various kinds, some securing nominal independence to the towns, and others reducing them to absolute subjection. The political changes in Rome itself, from the time of the Latin Wars, have been already in great part anticipated. Apius Claudius, afterward named Cocus, or the Blind, introduced a dangerous innovation in the Constitution during the Second Samnite War. Slavery existed at Rome, as among the other nations of antiquity, and as many slaves from various causes, acquired their liberty. There gradually sprung up at Rome a large and indigent population of servile origin. These freedmen were Roman citizens, but they could only be enrolled in the four city tribes, so that, however numerous they might become, they could influence only the votes of four tribes. 
a pious Claudius, in his censorship BC 312, when making out the lists of citizens, allowed the freedmen to enroll themselves in any tribe they pleased, but this dangerous innovation was abolished by the censors Q. Fabius Maximus and Pedicis Mus BC 304, who restored all the freedmen to the four city tribes. The censorship of Opius Island however, memorable for the great public works which he executed, he made the great military road called the Appian Way via Ipia, leading from Rhone to Capua, a distance of 120 miles, which long afterward was continued across the Apennines to Brundusium. He also executed the first of the great aqueducts at Ripia which supplied Rome with such an abundance of water. Sien, Flavius, the son of a freedman, and secretary to Opius Claudius, divulged the forms and times to be observed in legal proceedings. These the patricians had hitherto kept secret, they alone knew the days when the courts would be held, and the technical pleadings according to which all actions must proceed. But Flavius, having become acquainted with these secrets, by means of his patron, published in a book a list of the formularies to be observed in the several kinds of actions, and also set up in the form a lighted tablet containing a list of all the days on which the courts could be held, in spite of his ignominious birth. He was made a senator by Opius Claudius, and was elected cruel edile by the people. Chapter X The First Punic War, B.C. 264-241. Rome, now mistress of Italy, entered upon a long and arduous struggle with Carthage which ruled without a rival the western waters of the Mediterranean. This great and powerful city was founded by the Phoenicians of Tyre in B.C. 814. According to the common chronology, its inhabitants were consequently a branch of the Semitic race, to which the Hebrews also belonged. Carthage rose to greatness by her commerce, and gradually extended her empire over the whole of the north of Africa, from the Straits of Hercules to the borders of Cyrene. Her Libyan subjects she treated with extreme harshness and hence they were always ready to revolt against her so soon as a foreign enemy appeared upon her soil. The two chief magistrates at Carthage were elected annually out of a few of the chief families, and were called Safids. There was a senate of 300 members, and also a smaller council of 100, of which the latter were the most powerful, holding office for life, and exercising an almost sovereign sway over the other authorities in the state. The government was a complete oligarchy, and a few old, rich, and powerful families divided among themselves the influence and power of the state. These great families were often opposed to each other in bitter feuds, but concurred in treating with contempt the mass of the people. In her foreign wars Carthage depended upon mercenary troops, which her great wealth enabled her to procure in abundance from Spain, Italy, and Greece, as well as from Libya, Sardinia and Corsica were among her earliest conquests. 